Well, good morning. This is a series called Arrival, the Prophesied Advent of Christ. And this morning we're going to talk about the, the first in three messages, this Sunday, next Sunday, and then um, on Christmas Eve, just looking at all of the events that led up to Christ coming to earth as a baby and as a savior. And so this morning, I want to start a little bit someplace different. And the specific place that I want to start is here. And that is Main Street Magic. Does anybody know where Main Street Magic is? Disneyland. Who said Disneyland? Excellent. That's exactly right. Which, so not Disney World, not you East Coast people. I grew up in California. I grew up in California, and I got to go to Disneyland every year from the time I was about five or six years old all the way up. And, and here's the thing. I was a weird kid. I know that surprises you. Thank you. I was a weird kid. My favorite part of Disneyland was Main Street Magic. Not Pirates of the Caribbean. Definitely not. It's a small world. <sighs> um, I would love to go in here and and because if you went in, the guys who work behind the counter would do the magic tricks for you and you could watch them. And even at that age, six, seven, eight years old, I wanted to know how things worked. I wanted to understand what was behind the observation. And so I, I would go at Disneyland to Main Street Magic and I would watch. And, and I think it's that curiosity, that desire to know how things work that progressed from a fascination in magic tricks to um, studying science and chemistry and really the, the enjoyment of understanding how things worked at a molecular level. It was just so cool. And then to move into learning about organizations and systems and processes and finally into leadership and leadership coaching. And all of it has a theme that I want to know why things are and how they work. And, and it's been really fun for me to study some of the prophecies that lead up to the birth of Jesus. And we're going to do that together this morning. I hope you find it at least partially as enjoying as I did. Um, there's one more thing about Main Street Magic and my fascination. It may explain why at 11 years old, I was kicked out of children's church. <laughs> and I could tell you the story, but I want to show you. Um, we... We came to Children's Church, I was 11 years old, and we learned that we were gonna have a special speaker. And this special speaker said, I am going to show you a, a little magic trick. And, and so, the, really, I'm gonna show you a little bit of magic, but the fact is, the real magic, is that on Wednesday, I said to Tyler and Martin, hey, I'd like to do something with this, and then, all of a sudden, they've got this set up so that you can see it. It's, it's really cool. Let's just do a quick mic check here. Um, can you hear, can you hear the, the matches in the matchbox? Good. Okay, so the, the woman who was going to teach said, I want to show you children something. And, and then she showed us the three matchboxes, and she proceeded to take the matches out of the first box and out of the second box. And she left them in the first, 
but nothing in the first and second. And then she mixed them up, right? Now, I realize that you St. Louisans have been training for this your entire lives. Whether it's the Cardinal game or the Blues game, um, I was at the SLU basketball game yesterday and they did which egg is the Billiken hiding in? I mean, there's some fascination here in the Midwest about doing this, but this was all new to me. So you were paying attention, which box are the matches in? Wait, number one? Number two? Number three? Yeah, you were paying attention, it's, it's number three there. And it's not number one, and it's not number two, and I mixed them up again. And then she did this, right? She mixed them up, and she, she did this, and, you know, she'd say, she'd say Here, here's where the matches are. And the kids were trying to figure it out, and then she'd really freak out, and she'd say, okay, which, which one? So it's, it's actually still in number one, right? It's not here, it's not here. And then she would move them like this, and she'd go, no, it's still in number one. <laughs> Something amazing happened. I mean, first of all, it's the greatest children's church of all time because she's doing magic. <laughs> but in my 11-year-old brain, I had an epiphany. I knew what was going on. Now, this is the point where Nathaniel needs to turn off the live stream because I don't want to risk my chances of being included in the Magician's Guild. But she made a mistake. She said, does anybody want to guess where the matches are? And I shot my hand up. And she said, yes, the little boy with the cherubim face in the front. <laughs> and I said, all three boxes are empty, and you have a box in your sleeve. And when you shake it with the left hand, it rattles. And when you shake it with the right hand, it doesn't. It was the best moment of my 11-year-old life. <laughs> and she yelled at me. <laughs> now you've ruined it for everybody. Go sit in the hall until children's church is over. And that's the day that I learned what indignation feels like. Because she had said, does anybody want to guess where the matches are? And I guessed where the matches were, and she kicked me out. All that to say that I've always wanted to know how things work. And I'm not the only one in my family that always wants to know how things work. And that leads me to a conversation I had with my 12-year-old Lucas. Hi, Lucas. Um, a few, about a week or two ago, we were driving in the car on an errand, and he said, Dad, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, I love it when you ask me questions. Um, once I get to college, the questions are always about money. <laughs> but he's 12, so it was actually a really good question. He said, why is it that pastors can speak for an, half an hour on a passage of scripture and give all of this information and details and facts that aren't in the scripture. And I was so overjoyed that in just a short few years, I had raised a cynic. <laughs> I, seriously, I was proud of him. And we talked, about, we talked about principles of studying the Bible. And this morning, we're going to use four of the principles that Luke and I talked about as... Um, 
as a guide as we study a specific passage of scripture this morning. So the first principle, and I'll just put all four of them up here, is begin with a plain reading of the passage. And this takes into account what type of writing it is. So if it's poetry, read the passage as poetry and understand it as poetry. And if it's prophecy, read it as prophecy and understand it as prophecy. And, and if it's narrative, like the Matthew passage we'll study today, then, then read it as a plain description of the things that actually happen. The next principle is interpret scripture in light of scripture. And, and this, is, this is really where we'll spend most of our time this morning, just looking at how the, the passage that we study can be connected to so many other pieces of scripture. It's, it's all knitted together. The third is then go ahead and consider some other reputable sources. Um, and, and we'll do that this morning with the Matthew passage. And finally, um, ask what the author is trying to tell us about God. In fact, I had a friend named Rick Needham, and he said, the first question you should ask is, what does this passage tell you about God? Now, you'll notice that I have an email at the bottom of that, and I'm going to tell you what that is in just a few minutes. But first, let's, um, let's pray. God, I just pray that as, as we open your word and as we study the, the amazing gift of your scripture, um, that you would just open, open us up to what you're trying to say. And that in all that we look at and all that we study, that you would separate the, the truth from other ideas and that everything today would serve to draw us closer to you. We give you all the praise in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Matthew Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and the first 12 verses of that chapter are the account of the wise men and the star and, and Herod. And so let me just read that for you because the first principle is begin with a plain reading of the passage. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men, now your translation might say magi, M-A-G-I, um, that's actually the Greek word, from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, now he called a meeting of his wise men, because he had some too, and he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what, is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Now that's from the prophet Micah. And a couple of things are clear from just that passage. At least it appears that the Magi were not aware of the Micah prophecy because they went to Jerusalem to look for the king of the Jews, which makes sense, instead of going to Bethlehem as Micah directed. Um, and the second thing is, and it's pretty obvious, that the priests and the teachers of the law were fully aware of the prophecy of Micah. 
In fact, they were probably aware of all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the Messiah. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this, after this interview, the wise men went their way and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time for them to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So when I read this passage with just a plain reading of the passage, I see at least four ways that God is communicating with the wise men. And this is the, the congregational participation portion of the message. And so what ways did God use to communicate with the wise men? Okay, so by nature, what do you mean? The star, yeah. And I heard star over here too, you get points. Um, so, so star, that's one. How else did God communicate with them? In a dream, yeah. He warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod. How else did he communicate with them? Which prophecy? The, the Micah prophecy, right? So they weren't aware of the Bethlehem piece of the prophecy, and the priests and the teachers of the law communicated. You, you got three. Is there a fourth? Through Herod? Maybe. I mean, I don't really want to give Herod much credit at all. And, and I said at least four, so maybe that's right. That's not the one that I'm thinking about. Anyone? Singing angels. Um, no, that's the next story, but, but thank you for playing. Um, for those of you over here, that was one of my kids. The one I just bragged on. <laughs> so, um, it's great. Um, what I see is that they came asking for who was born king of the Jews, which I think means that God had communicated to them with previous prophecies that they were aware of. Because you can see a lot of things in the star, you can follow a star, you can recognize that it's something amazing, but there's a little more information that they're confessing to knowing, that a child is born that will be the king for all, Jew, all of the Jews. And so what I see is that, that God is communicating and leading these wise men in multiple different ways. A couple other things that we see from the reading. One, the priests and the teachers of the law knew about Micah. They knew about a bunch of other stuff. And did you notice their response? What action did they take in this passage um, when they realized that a sign had occurred which indicated that the Messiah had been born? They quickly did what? Nothing. They quickly did nothing. In fact, then they took their time doing nothing because even though they knew what was going on, they didn't respond. And I think that's going to be important as we 
continue to study. Um, there's a lot in this passage. There's a lot of questions that it raises, like who were the Magi, and how did they come looking for a newborn king of the Jews? And we talked about why they went maybe to Bethlehem instead of Jerusalem. Um, and, and what was the star? I want to move on to the second principle that I talked about with Lucas, which is which is interpret the scripture in light of scripture. And to do that, I want to reintroduce a visualization of the connectedness of scripture that I've used in the past. It's, a, it's a, an artwork from a guy named Chris Harrison. And some of you remember this. It is what this represents is this little jagged sawtooth line along the bottom is every chapter in the 66 books of the Bible. Okay? And each of these connecting lines is a related verse between a chapter here and a chapter here. And to make this visualization, Chris Harrison used over 65,000 different connections between verses in Scripture. And, and I want you to have this because I think it's so beautiful. And um, right before the first service, Stephen Cruzy said, the last time I used this, he found the image and it's been his computer screensaver for the last few years. And it's just a really good reminder that the Bible is not a single verse or a chapter or even a book or collection of books. It is the integrated revelation of God. Um, and so, if, if you will send an email to Kevin plus stuff, it's the plus sign, Kevin plus stuff at efree.org, it will, by some magic of my own, automatically send you an email with a link to this file. And it will also send you an email, or a link to uh, a website where you can search the connections of one verse with over 340,000 other connections. And, and that, site is, that site is crowdsourced, so it will ask you, was this connection, was this reference, this cross-reference helpful? And if you mark yes, it moves it up. And so at the top of the cross-references are the ones that the most people have found helpful. It's really amazing, the tools that we have today to study scripture. And so if, if you send that email, um, and it's funny because on my iPad, I see as you send the emails. And so thank you, those of you that, um, Jason Hughes, good job, thank you, good job. Um, Jeff Estes, thank you, Jeff. Oh, it was, it was Kathy, no, Adam Ward. Okay, we're, that's a waste of time. Um, Adam Ward is not a waste of time. Me reading all of the, yeah. Um, I want to send that to you because as we ask questions like who were these magi, we can actually find some clues throughout scripture. So let me show you that this bright area right here is Matthew, okay? Thank you for actually making the first of the New Testament. That's the New Testament there. That's the Old Testament there. That's why these one-year Bible plans that usually stall out about here. Um, here's chapter two of Matthew. And we can draw a line to Genesis where Joseph is in prison and the Pharaoh has a dream. And Joseph's 
summoned from prison because it says in the scripture that all of Egypt's magicians and wise men couldn't tell Pharaoh his, the meaning of his dream. And so he pulled, pulled Joseph out of prison, and you know the rest. Joseph is advanced to one of the leaders of all of Egypt. And then we could draw a line from Matthew to Exodus, and in, in another Pharaoh's court, we see Moses and Aaron show up and turn their staffs into snakes, and the magicians and the wise men in Pharaoh's court were able to do the same thing. In fact, they were also able to copy the water into blood, and they were able, when the plague of the frogs came, to actually somehow make more frogs. Now, it might very well have been the equivalent of a matchbox up their sleeve. And can we just be honest for a moment? If you're suffering a plague of frogs, having magicians who can make more frogs is not really helpful. <laughs> so I don't know what they were trying to accomplish, but we see that rulers throughout the Old Testament assemble the smartest and wisest and most capable and maybe trickiest into their court as wise men or, or magicians or astrologers. In fact, let's look at one more. It's a little bit closer. So this is thousands of years. And if we go from Matthew over here to Daniel, and here's Daniel, 12 chapters of Daniel. Um, this is 600 years. And, and Daniel is where I think it really gets interesting. So, so you remember that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, and um, they have this whole thing about what they're going to eat, and then they turn out to be better off than all of the other king's men, and, and so they, they, they get advanced into like this collection of, of wise men. Um, and in Daniel chapter 2, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Let me just read you a couple verses from the start of Daniel chapter 2. One night, during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Now let me stop there because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek language Old Testament, the word used for magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers is magi. So he called in his magi, his wise men, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. And as they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. And, and here's the thing. Here's the challenge that he put before all of his kingdom's wise men. Not just interpret the dream like the pharaoh did earlier, but first tell me what the dream was, and then tell me what it means. And it's fun to read all of chapter 2 because the wise men say, we, we can't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, fine, I'm going to kill you all. And he actually sends guards to go get Daniel and the other Israelites and, and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, bring them in. We're going to just slaughter them all because they're all worthless. And Daniel says, stop, my God will reveal this mystery. And, and Daniel's able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is and what it means, and and Daniel saves the lives of all of the wise men, the magi, the magicians, astrologers, um, in the kingdom by 
answering Nebuchadnezzar's question. And here's what it says at the end of chapter two, at the end of this account. It says, the king said to Daniel, truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And get this, as well as the chief over all his wise men. So Daniel is now the chief over all the wise men. In fact, that's a title that we see recur in chapter four of Daniel, and we see it again in chapter five of Daniel. And then in chapter six of Daniel, we have a new king named Darius. And, and Darius, it says, is planning to make Daniel the ruler over all of the empire. So promote him again. And some people in the, in the kingdom get wind of this, and they don't want that to happen. And now, now, one of the things that I want to make sure is that as we study different pieces of Scripture, we say, what do we know clearly from Scripture and what is outside of the Bible? But I have it on good authority that those people in Darius's kingdom got together and they sang, oh no, what are we going to do? The king likes Daniel more than me and you. <laughs> and they hatched a plan to tie him up and beat him up and throw him out of Babylon. And instead, they convinced Darius to throw him in, the, in a den of lions. And God protects Daniel from the den of lions and Darius pulls him up and he's overjoyed and, and he makes a proclamation that everybody throughout the kingdom should should worship Daniel's God. And the final verses of chapter six in Daniel say that Daniel enjoyed a good reputation with both Darius and then with Cyrus, during the reign of Cyrus. And, and that's the final king that, that Daniel served under. And so that's the first six books of Daniel. The second six books of Daniel are all prophecy. As God spoke to Daniel in dreams and visions um, about what was going to happen in the ages to come. And, and in that prophecy, and this is, this is amazing, Daniel hears in chapter nine from an angel. So Daniel is praying as the prophecies are continuing and God is telling him what's going to happen with the Israelites. And, and Daniel is praying this beautiful prayer in the first half of chapter 9 that says, um, I want to confess on, on my behalf and on my people's behalf. And God, have mercy on us and, and, and lead us. And so halfway through that, this is what Daniel, starting in verse 21 says, Daniel says, as I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen in earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given, and now I am here to tell you what it was. For you are very precious to God. Listen carefully so that you can understand the meaning 
of your vision. Now, you guys rec recognize Gabriel, right? There are three people that Gabriel appears to. He appears to Daniel, and then in Luke, he appears to Zechariah. Zechariah is serving in the temple, and Gabriel shows up and says, hey, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And Zechariah says, how can I trust you? And Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. And it was God who sent me to tell you this, and because you don't believe me, uh, you won't be able to speak until the child is born. And it was Gabriel who later went to Mary and said, blessed are you among all women, and told her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. Apparently, Gabriel's job is to tell people what's going to happen with respect to Jesus. And, and specifically, very special people. I, I love that he tells Daniel, the minute you started praying, a command was given. You are very precious to God. Let me tell you what's going to happen. And so the prophecy that Daniel receives, that Gabriel explains in the rest of chapter 9, is specific about a number of things, including the exact number of years between a command to rebuild Jerusalem and the crucifixion, the death of the Messiah. 483 years, in fact. And, and here's a short description of the interpretation of that prophecy that I found. It says, the order to rebuild Jerusalem was issued by King Artaxerxes in the book of Nehemiah. And many of you were here a few years ago when we studied through the entire book of Nehemiah, and it was cool, but you might remember that Artaxerxes told them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And 483 years later, Christ Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. So hundreds of years in advance, the book of Daniel predicted that the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt, that the Messiah would enter it, and that he would be put to death. And that that would happen 483 years after the decree to rebuild the temple. So, how about some, some conjecture? Conjecture. Um, if, if Daniel was in charge of all of the Magi, the wise men of Babylon, and Daniel shared with them the prophecies that he wrote down in their time, it, it's just fascinating to me the possibility that through generation after generation they passed those expectations and prophecies down and were careful with how many years had passed so that when God spoke to those magi with a star they had a context that they'd carried for 600 years and they understood that that meant a king would be born to Jerusalem now as I explained to Lucas when we talked about studying the Bible it's super important to be clear on what you know for sure and what, you're just, what conclusions you're drawing. And, and these are things that are connecting dots in a logical way. I just find it really fascinating to think about how Daniel's prophecy may have served those magi. Um, let's move on to the next, which is consider other reputable sources. Uh, and, and you may think, okay, maybe that's theologians, maybe that's other pastors, 
I started with these two guys. Um, Johannes Kepler and Isaac Newton. Let's talk about Newton first because you've heard of him, right? Both of these guys make the top 25 list of greatest scientists of all time. Isaac Newton invented calculus. He invented all of the non-relativistic physics. In fact, today we call those Newtonian physics. But he didn't name those because that would be a little bit much. Um, and, and he introduced the theory of universal gravitation. Like, he's usually number three, number two on the list of the greatest scientists of all time. And one of his books, which was published five years after his death, is called Observations Upon the Prophecies of Daniel and the Apocalypse of St. John. And in his observations on the prophecies of Daniel, Isaac Newton does meticulous calculations to, to look at that 483 years and say if it started when Artaxerxes made his proclamation and it went 483 years into the future, where does it land? And Newton's calculations, which I have not checked, <laughs> land on the day of Christ's crucifixion. I just think that's so cool. I don't even know. Um, it's so cool that one of the greatest scientists is, by some accounts, has spent more time thinking about and interpreting scripture than interpreting God's creation. There's a, there's a famous quote by Newton that says, if I have seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. And one of the giants that he's no doubt talking about is Kepler. Because Kepler studied and published uh, about 50 years before Newton. And, and Kepler was the one who first figured out that the orbits of the planets around the sun, which, I mean, let's be honest, even the idea that the planets orbited around the sun was a new idea, but Kepler figured out that they didn't orbit in a circular fashion, but in an elliptical fashion. And moving from a circle to an ellipse in the models allowed Kepler to be the first to actually map the progress of Mars through the solar system. This is just... I know I'm boring half of you. <laughs> but the other half, I mean, come on, this is cool stuff. Okay, maybe it's less than half because only one person clapped. <laughs> All right, knock it off. Let's go. Um, both Kepler and Newton believed that God's creation was orderly and that they could expect to, to find truth, not only by studying scripture, which they did, but by studying God's creation. And Kepler spent a ton of time after 1603 when he saw a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. A conjunction is when the, the planets come close enough together that they look like a single bright spot in the sky. And at the same time in 1603, he saw a, a nova, which is an explosion that occurs on a star that makes it either look brighter from Earth or appear for the first time at Earth, so it looked like a new star. And he, he started thinking, what did the night sky in Bethlehem look like at the time of the birth of Christ? 
And this is why Kepler is on the list of greatest scientists of all time, because he calculated without calculus, because Newton hadn't invented it yet, he calculated the position of the planets in the first few years before Christ, one to four, one to seven, someplace in there, looking for similar conjunctions that might have signaled the wise men that something amazing had happened. Because he expected that God would speak through whatever means necessary to make known the birth of the Messiah. Now, Kepler and Newton are not the only scientists who were interested in the birth of Christ and the Bethlehem star. In fact, um, in, in uh, 2007, a guy named Rick Larson presented a movie called The Star of Bethlehem. If you Google Star of Bethlehem movie, you can watch it on YouTube. I did. It's fascinating. Rick Larson uses software and computers um, to model what the night sky looked like in Bethlehem at the time of Christ's birth. And he shows a conjunction of planets, and he shows that clearly the Star of Bethlehem was this and nothing else. Now remember, we have to be really careful about what we're sure of and what we're not. Because in 2015, a guy named Colin Nickel published The Great Christ Comet, which refuted everything that Rick Larson said and, and said, no, in fact, the Bethlehem star was actually a comet, and that's why it traveled through space, and they could follow it, and it pointed at the place where the child was. And if you read, oh, say, 30 different commentaries... Um, and, and in fact, I, in, if, you, if you use that Kevin Plus stuff at efree.org, um, another one of the links is to an article that takes all 30 of the top commentaries and, and captures what they say about the Bethlehem star. It's a, it's a quick, cool read. And what you'll see is that in a, in a count of about three to one, the, the theologians writing the commentaries kind of favor that maybe it was something miraculous that God did akin to the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the desert at night. And I just got to tell you, I don't know. We have to be careful about what we know for sure and what we don't know. Here's what we know for sure. God was so intent on leading the wise men to signal the birth of Christ that he found a way to communicate with them that they would understand that they would be amazed by, and that they would worship. Um, one, of, one of the commentators in that article is R.C. Sproul, and he says, perhaps no text has been subjected to more speculation than the description of the star that led these men from the east. I think it would be very difficult to follow the tale of a comet or even an inordinarily bright conjunction of two planets to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. I suspect that this is another account of a miraculous work of God to guide men to their proper place. Let's look at that fourth principle of Bible study. And that is, ask what the author is telling us about God. And, and it's important to know that each of the four Gospels is written to a 
slightly different audience. Right? Here's a description of which audiences each of the Gospels was written to that I found that I think is really helpful. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience. Mark was written for a Roman audience. Luke was written for a Greek audience. And John was written for a universal or a Gentile audience. And so we have to ask, what's Matthew's specific purpose for his Jewish audience when we see it in his account of Jesus and the Roman officer in chapter Eight. So let's look there, because I think we see a theme that starts with the Magi and shows up here again with this healing. Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 5, says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer, um, it sometimes says centurion, came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Just say the words from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, mostly Jews, he said, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believe it has happened and the young servant was healed that same hour. The theme throughout Matthew is that the priests and the teachers of the law who have every reason to know don't see and worship the Messiah, but that God is extending that invitation outside of the nation of Israel to people throughout the world. We see it again in Matthew's final verses, the Great Commission. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What amazing measures God goes through to invite us back. Now, the application here is maybe two-sided. You might be sitting here and feeling like an outsider. In fact, this might be your first week here in this church or any church, wondering why am I here? And, and like the Magi who traveled thousands of miles to find the birth of a Jewish king, God can orchestrate the events of our lives to bring us back to and if you're here and you feel like an outsider, let me just say welcome, that you're here because God loves you and he is orchestrating a way back to him. 
Alternatively, you might be like me and you spent your entire life in church and you have studied and learned and gotten kicked out of children's church and, and you know all the answers to all the multiple choice questions. But there's a danger that we can have the error of the priests and the teachers of the law. We can be smart, but not wise. And this Advent season, as we study and dive into all that God did to bring about the birth of the Messiah, would be a great time to soften and tune our hearts to what God wants to do in us and through us. The cool thing is, that's how it really works. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for, oh, I thank you for your word. It's so amazing. What a gift. And I thank you for all that you have done, not only to prepare the way and announce the arrival of your son, Jesus, but God, all that you have done to make him known to us. Help us to not waste or miss what you're calling us to. Father, help us in this time of preparation to be renewed in our love and our worship for you. Even this morning as we close by singing your praises in your name, amen.